Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the Misty, Motivated, and Under the Weather, Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean, aside from the sickness? I do have the flu. I do have a... I am running a fever. I am getting a a, a bit... Uh, I'm hallucinating. So, it should be an interesting show. Interesting show. That's, that is uh, kind of fascinating to me. I can't wait to see what happens with that. Yeah, so you know, if I start spouting incoherently, you know everything's okay. <laughs> Everything will be just fine, just fine, completely and totally fine. So, Sean, uh, we're going to talk about high-level adventures today, but before we get to that, we have some announcements, uh, especially this crazy one that's been going on, which Piazzo announced Pathfinder 2.0. Yep, it was not a big surprise with anyone who's been in the industry for more than 10 minutes, because... We've talked about it before. There's this RPG publishing death cycle where when you release your core books, they sell really well. And then as you release more and more um, sales decrease, your profits decrease, you have to start firing people um, and then you need to come out with a new edition or some new product that uh, revigorates your cycle. And Paizo has been they've elongated that death cycle for about as long as they could. Um, by certain means, some good, some bad, but they have finally given in and realized that they are not immune to this uh, publishing death cycle. And so now they've announced 2.0 Pathfinder. And so I want to have a quick, frank discussion about this, Chris. This may be the fever talking. Um, So there's two things. The first thing is no one should be surprised by this. Um, Like we said, this happens. Uh, for people that are upset by this because you've been playing Pathfinder and you have $50,000 worth of books and adventures and everything, those books are still there. They're, they're not being taken away from you, so you can still play them. Um, so, you know, people that are online defending Paizo, saying, you know, this these things happen, perfectly relevant. There is an irony, though, Chris, about this. And I feel that every bit of irrational criticism that Paizo is getting right now is them totally sowing what they have reaped. Or is it backwards? Reaping what they have sowed. Sure. Um, Because really what Paizo did when they created Pathfinder was make a business plan out of fostering this irrational hatred of Watsi for creating a new edition. And some of it was done behind the scenes. Um, You know, I, I saw... A good amount of people I know, friends of mine, trashed um, either publicly or privately by Paizo or Paizo's minions. Um, And it was kind of discouraging. And so now to see those same people being criticized for what they built their whole business plan on is kind of amusing. Paizo is going to be just fine. You know, their hardcore fans are going to buy this new book they're coming out with. and, and all will be well. Who I feel sorry for are the third-party publishers who were publishing Pathfinder-compatible material who are now saying that they were told that there would never be a second edition so they didn't have to worry about it. And now they've you know doubled down on creating products and there are still the products in creation right now to be Pathfinder-compatible that now what do you do with them? So I kind of feel bad for that. I mean, they can still make that stuff. Those games still exist, right? It's not like they can not make it. It's just that, you know, well, it's not going to sell as well because there's going to be a second edition. Exactly. I mean, you you have to make your business plan based on the audience that you know is there. And that audience was just basically yanked out from under them. Um, and it's kind of sort of the same thing that happened to Paizo from Wizards. Not, It's not quite the same. Um, when, when, you know, Paizo, Paizo was... This might be a bad analogy, but they were kind of Watsi's farm team, you know, in baseball terms. You know, they they were supported by Wizards to a great extent. There would be no Paizo without Wizards. They were given the Dungeon and Dragon license um, to publish those magazines at, let's let's just say, very reasonable rates. Um, mm-hmm. 
some behind the scenes knowledge I have, which I'm not going to share, says that they would never have been able to do what they did without wizards bending over backwards to help them during those third edition days. When fourth edition came out and the open gaming license or uh, what was the equivalent of that for fourth edition um, was pretty bad in terms of being reasonable for companies to do what they did for third edition. So that's why Paizo was uh-huh. forced to basically republish 3.5 with a new cover and new art and call it their own, uh, which is perfectly fine business wise. It's not like they innovated anything. Uh, Paizo's always made great products. They've always been cunning business people. Let's put it that way. Um, so, you know, they they survived and built a franchise based on hate for for Watsi for creating fourth edition. So now that uh, Paizo is creating their own uh, new edition, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I, I really need to. OK, I need to step in and talk a little bit because I don't necessarily disagree with anything that you've said period like everything you said i'm perfectly mm-hmm. on board with and whatnot um the team so so i'm i'm interested in the new version of this game because i've been watching all the the stuff come out on the design of it i'm interested in the design of games right like sure sure i, I i'm i don't think i'm wrong when i say that pathfinder while being the based on 3.5 and essentially 3.5 is a much better version of 3.5. Like I've played Pathfinder, not a small amount mm-hmm. of it too. Like it is a better mm-hmm. game than the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons. It just is. I, I will argue with people till they're blue in the face about that. It's a better game. Um, right. But, but is, did it innovate anything or did it add some homebrew rules that any DM pretty much could have come up with? Um. So I, I, I I, I will just look at other other places in the industry then for this. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think Numenera 2 is going to be so different from Numenera. I don't right. think Cypher System is any really any different. I don't think the versions of Call of Cthulhu that have come out oh, no. until they, they the haven't. most recent one are very different. So I don't right. really have a problem with them doing that game design-wise. But, like, uh, you can either change your game and make it something different, or you can just fix all the stuff that was wrong with it beforehand to make it a better version of the game that you made before. And right, but Pathfinder did not fix three fives problems. I think it fixed a lot of them. Oh, okay. Uh, I guess we can definitely disagree on that. Then I mean, the skill system is a much smoother skill system in Pathfinder. The um, the combat modifier bonus is a better set of mechanics than anything that three point five had for grappling and all those other crazy rules. It kind of codified that system, so there was far less subsystems. Um, there are still spell things, but like uh, three point five uh, hit the uh, what what now fifth edition uses as far as like the cantrip stuff. Like, I mean, fourth edition was kind of doing that, but the cantrip stuff kind of popped up in Pathfinder also. Mm-hmm. Like that's, those are, those are all quality innovations on the game. Like still using that base yeah. OGL I, I, license. Yeah. I just don't see those innovations. I see them as taking things from other games and, and just plopping them in. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a difference of opinion and that's fine. Um, yeah, like com- combat modifier bonus is an innovation to that game, I would say. Like that was a good that was a good fix to a lot of the issues that I had with that game. Cuz then I didn't have to look at the 87 different subsystems for different kinds of like tripping and grappling and all that stuff. It was all rolled into one. Mm-hmm. So if you want to talk about innovations there there it is. But yeah, but like they they make good products too. Like they're they're good publishers. I would say now I'm not saying they're amazing innovators. I'm not really a huge Pathfinder fan. I have a lot of issues with their communities in a lot of ways and how they go about their business, like how they go about treating people. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not very fond of them in that fact. Um, I think they're all fairly competent designers. So I'm curious to see what this design does since it's kind of a next step from the previous Mm -hmm. game. Like they're so, uh, I mean, what do you, here's the thing about, like fifth edition has a completely different design mm-hmm. team than like third edition or even fourth edition had right. in a lot of ways. So what happens when you have the same design team that in a, that that redid three point five to P- Pathfinder now doing Pathfinder to Pathfinder two? That's a- it'll be interesting to see how that design evolves. Right, and I think some of the things we've seen are they're looking to, to fifth edition, um, and are, are going to head in that direction. 
Wow, that's weird because I didn't think they did that at all. Because I went, I think they went to video games and took an action point economy, which I hadn't really seen in role playing games very effectively. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, I, they're doing the play test, so we'll see. Yep. Uh, well, just some predictions about how, how you think this goes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, they're going to sell their playtest book at Gen Con. Yep. Not surprising. They're badly in need of money. Um, so they're going to have to sell their playtest book uh, to keep the company going, I would guess. Um, I'm surprised that they're badly in need of money. They wouldn't be doing a new edition if they weren't. You don't think so? Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know why. It's just, a, just my opinion. Um, okay. I think probably what they'll do is they'll say what a great success their playtest book was that they sold out on the first day, but they won't tell how many books they brought to sell. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. it could be a hundred, it could be two hundred, could be a thousand. You know, you don't know. Um, they'll probably run the playtest model uh, that D and D next used, where you know we're going to iterate, but they're going to do it in a much shorter amount of time instead of taking years to do it, like they did with the fifth edition. They're going to do it in months and maybe even just a couple months um, because they need money. They, they can't afford to, to go through all those iterations. Um, it, they're not doing anything in my opinion, differently than they did for their last play test for Pathfinder and um, their last play test for Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. They sold a book just right. like they're doing for this one. And they play tested it publicly um, for, mm-hmm. for months before they put out their, their core book. I don't – so I'm – I think it's interesting that you think that they're doing this because they need money because they just made Starfinder and supposedly that's selling pretty well. Like Supposedly. Yeah. Uh, that, that is that is the rumor. Hearing, hearing, hearing from whom? Uh, just around the internet. That's what MWorld says and that's what people are saying. Like there's no hard concrete data. They're yeah. not nearly as transparent as somebody like Evil Hat where I could just go ask Fred Hicks like how's a game selling? He'll tell me, eh, it's doing shitty or it's doing really well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mean this is all like – um, maybe like, do you, do you have a little bit of hate for, for Piazzo? Not, not really. I mean, the only, the, I, I did not like, the, I don't like the way they treat their employees. Me neither. And I don't like the business model that they used, um, which was to, to in public say, you know, we, we don't have anything against fourth edition, yada, yada, yada. Whereas I know that paid employees in their employ, full-time people, were actively and vehemently trashing anyone they could, including good friends of mine. Yeah, I mean, there. I um, I don't. There's a reason that we don't talk about Pathfinder very much in any of the Misdirected Mark shows. It's because I'm not one. I don't encourage it. Like, if people wanted to on different shows, I would. I would. I wouldn't care. Um, it's why I've never really pushed to have a Pathfinder show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of of how they operate, but yeah. game design wise, I'm always fascinated right. by, oh, yeah. by that kind of and, stuff. And, and the, 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 my issue is, I have people there who I consider friends, who are good, good yeah. folk, and and they, so you know, it's it's just a it's a philosophy that I don't like in business, um, mm-hmm. in my own work, I not game design, but in you know, in the other way, I I always try to be on the up and up with with people. Yeah, and absolutely. So, you know, it's just. It's something that I saw over the years that I didn't enjoy. Um, but, you know, in terms of their business, they're they're very smart. Um, they make good products. They have, you know, the assets and the talent there to do everything they need to do to succeed. It'll just be very mm-hmm. interesting, uh, like I said, to see how this play test plays out, um, what it will end up looking like, um, you know, and how they – will in their minds try to compete with 5e even though it's complete it's two different completely different things there there's two different levels they, they right? can't they, they can't compete one they don't have the ip recognition um uh, as, as cool as galarian is as a world in my opinion like it's very kitchen sinky fantasy right. which is fine and i have no problem with it i actually like it quite a bit i own several of the um the pathfinder uh adventure pass because they're really good like they get good writers they put mm-hmm. together good stories but they're not nearly as quality or as famous as like the forgotten realms or even mm-hmm. eberron right like 
so like you have a you have a point on here for predictions, like how they're going to desperately try to get famous people to do streaming. Like Harmon Quest was pretty successful as far as I could tell, as far as a streaming thing, and they mm-hmm. played Pathfinder. It's still not nearly what Critical right. Role is or what even Maze Arcana is. So or what Yeah, and and, and that's strange because you know, Dan Harmon is much more in outside of the gaming world powerful and popular than say you know, like uh, Matt Mercer, mm-hmm. but it still didn't do anything in terms of um, you know, impact on the culture and bringing in players than the critical role or, or uh, acquisitions incorporated did. So, and uh, they, they also don't have the, like the adventure zone did really well for D and D in the early days of them podcasting fifth edition. Like, mm-hmm. and cause they were not, they, they were not known for um, being gaming podcasters, right? They, they did, a, they did a comedy podcasters and, and other right. people did that too. So like, those are, that's, you're right. Like, and they're probably going to try to find some people to do that kind of stuff, but it's just not, it's not Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like it's not D and D and that's unfortunate for Piazzo. They just don't have, they don't have the history and the lore to 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 to, to draw from mm-hmm. that D and D has, and that people are now like building on top of like Force Gray is a thing. Like I, people know what Force right. Gray means. It's just it's a thing, right? Like and that's mm-hmm. new as far as I can tell. Um, the, I, I couldn't actually tell you any of the any of the stuff from Critical Role. Like I don't know like the world or anything mm-hmm. like that. But I know who right. those people are. Like I know who Laura, Laura mm-hmm. Bailey is and such. Um, and I didn't mm-hmm. before them. Uh, I mean, like the Maze Arcana stuff with Satine Phoenix and Rudy Rutenberg, like Keith Baker, Keith Baker, Keith yeah. Baker. No, no that's the wrong right. Baker. Keith. Is it right? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was thinking Rich. Uh, sorry. Rich, I, Rich, Rich Baker's Baker right for Baker. a second. Keith, Keith Baker was like, yeah, like, go ahead. Let's do this thing. And then Chris Lindsay got involved with that, too. So, like, they're now household names if you're paying attention to Dungeons and Dragons at all. Like, you and me are obviously neck deep in this stuff. But anybody who's just a fan yeah. knows who that is. Like, it's – and it's great. Yep. It's cool. I love it. But, like, Pathfinder doesn't mm-hmm. have any of that as far as I can tell. Piazzo doesn't have any of that. <laughs> so, that's a problem. Well, hey, you know, I do wish them well. I hope that the game that they come out with innovates and pushes forward the whole idea of new and different ways to, to role play. Me too. I'm very interested in their action point economy for how they how people can do things in a round. Because as far as I can tell right now in, in the initial playtest, it's three actions and you can spend them on whatever to either move or attack. And if you want to cast a spell, usually it costs two actions to cast most spells, but one action to cast like first level spells or cantrips. So mm-hmm. you can throw two spells around and around and such. But so like there's some interesting point expenditure play that exists in that game that doesn't exist in other games. So I'm interested. Okay. All right. Uh, Sean, Savage Encounters, Minds of Chult is out. This is something that you worked on with Jeff Stevens and Tony uh, Petrica. Tell me about it. Well, it is a a product that has nine mini adventures and they're all extensively set within Chult in different mines throughout that land. Um, So, there are nine of these. They cover all level ranges. There are some new monsters, some new items. There's a great piece of cover art by Natalie Lehnert. Um, so in all, it's about 62 pages total of goodness. So as of this recording, it isn't out. But by the time the show drops, it will be. And you can find it on the DMs Guild if you search for Minds of Chult. Uh, it's very exciting. Very exciting. Very cool stuff. I, uh, I, I encourage you all to go out there and buy that and, and support Sean's habit of being a writer. Yeah. And, and the cool thing is, you know, after you write a lot of Adventures League stuff, you're kind of you're a bit trapped within a formula. So when you write something else, you can get a little crazy and do some really different things. And mm-hmm. I did that with one of the mines. There's a nice. time loop. <laughs> I love time loops. Which which I'm, I'm hoping uh, works well uh, for for this adventure. All right. Let's talk about uh, Mordenkind Tone of Foes preview the Drugar. So did you uh, did you read through this? I didn't see this. I did. Yeah, I did real quick. It's it's just one page out of uh, Mordenkainen's, and it has a bunch of charts based on the Duragar. So there are clan names, clan status, clan notable trait. Uh, so you can create a clan quickly. And then there are two charts for adventuring Duragar, um, some story hooks and some quirks that you can roll a die in and get different things. And you know, it's it's interesting. I'm not big into charts, uh, so I wasn't as excited about seeing that page as opposed to maybe some other pages out of the book. Um, and what I found interesting, mm-hmm. though, was, you know, 
it says here, the tables below are designed to add depth to your character uh, by reasons they left the clan and their personality quirks. So they have these things, but they didn't don't call them bonds or, or personality traits or flaws. You know, they call them these different things. And I'm wondering if that was done on purpose or if they just completely forgot that they have this character building thing already set up and they could slide those right in there. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, yeah. I, it does make sense. Like, why not stick yeah, instead with of call them story hooks, call them bonds. Like, why not stick in the instead of calling them quirks? Why not Correct. call them flaws? You know, it's just that's weird. Yep, it's a little weird unless they're trying to get away from that. System and, and that's that what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if this book has something different and we don't know about it yet, or if it's just they uh, they didn't make that connection. Hmm. I'm I'm with you. I'm now I'm now I'm actually very curious as to see what their design is going to look like cuz uh I mean that's that's the thing that I'm very interested in. Um all right, cool. I'm uh I'm into it. Yep. I can't wait to see more from this book. All right, fourth thing. Uh D&D Beyond Con- blah, blah, blah. Down with D&D word scramble. D&D Beyond content off to a great start. So there's D&D content over there now for uh for dnd beyond so intercaso hake and shay which we've had both of them on the show recently two of them on the show recently and we've had shay on the show before too so we've had all three of these folks on the show sean they're writing all kinds of good stuff yeah they're writing all kinds of good stuff there's a feat design workshop there's like how to play an evil red dragon there's finding and maintaining dnd groups what are some of your favorite stuff that you've seen so far well i'm i'm digging all of it right now but the two things i am just most interested in is catching chris what I'm most interested in is uh, James Intracasso's stuff because he really breaks down how to design a feat, how to design a good background. Uh, so, if, you know, for DMs out there or players who want to make their own stuff, he goes into great detail. You know, these are the different kinds of feats. He breaks them down into different types, and this is how you create them. And don't create one that's already there or use ones that are there as a model for creating your own. And it's great insight of, uh, you know, good, really good stuff all around. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, James is a really smart, and Intercosto is a really smart mm-hmm. designer and, and writer, and he understands this game exceptionally well. So well, that's really cool that he's put that content out there for people to really take a look at and get, get inside of. So if you want to be a designer of some sort, especially when it comes to this stuff, I'm sure he's going to have more of them. Uh, I would check out his stuff. Absolutely. Study it, read it. Okay, let's move on to our topic for the day. We're talking about high-level adventures. Sean, would you lead us into this, please? Sure. Uh, I think in all in all editions of D&D, and 5e is no exception here, the game becomes, quote-unquote, something else at higher levels or higher tiers of play. Uh, at Winter Fantasy, I had a, heard or had a lot of discussions about complaints or worries from the Adventures League players about some of the higher-tier play uh, content because it's really problematic in a lot of different ways as a player, as a DM, as if you're creating adventures for public play, especially it can be problematic. So what I wanted to do today was touch on some of those topics and maybe come up with some ways for you as a DM or as an adventure creator to make that high level play a little better for the players and for the DMs. Okay, let's do it. So I think the first thing that we want to talk about is All right. think about the scope of play for the different tiers that you're in. So Tier one is local threats, like you want to save the town, um, save the, the the farm, save the village, things like that. Uh, tier two is regional threats. Now we're, we've gotten, the, as adventurers, you've gotten noticed by the king or the mayor of a large city, something like that. And you're trying to uh, deal with that situation, save those people. Um, we're talking about probably orc hordes attacking lo- uh, locations and in, in countries and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about and then we get to tier three, which is where we start getting into what I consider higher level play, right? Right. So at that point, you've gone beyond. You've saved the town. You've saved the nation. You've saved the kingdom. But now that threat that you thought was contained there turns out to be a global threat. So now you're you're saving the Sword Coast, or you're saving all of Eberron. Uh, you've moved just beyond just that smaller, uh, more confined plot. Mm-hmm. And then with tier four, Chris, where do you think we go from there? So, I mean, we're talking about existence or the world in, in some cases. Uh, we're, we're, we're jumping around dealing with like, like uh, y- a- yeah, universe ending threats. For instance, like 
stop something from getting this book that can rewrite reality stop something from shattering the the sphere that the crystal sphere that your existence is inside of because if it does then everything stops like we're talking about that right now you're on a planar level um uh-huh. you're, you're adventuring in the abyss and you know on the astral plane and in Shadowfell or wherever rather than just in the material mortal world so as you come up with those threats, you really need to start thinking on those scales when you get into tier three and tier four play. For tier three and four yeah. adventures, you're probably going to move beyond the dungeon. Um, that doesn't say you can't have adventures in a dungeon, but you might want to move, have adventures that are multi-locale. Um, so the characters need to use their brains and their resources not just to deal with the threat, but actually getting to the place where they need to deal with the threat can become resource draining and an adventure within itself. Mm-hmm. And then also um, I think even more so at, at this stage of play, like the adversaries that you're dealing with, they need to be moving and doing their own things and putting lots of time pressure on what's going on because that gets characters making choices and not being able to deal with everything all the time because they can't be everywhere at once, right? There you go. Yep. And and the locales that the adventurers go to for these adventures need to be threats within themselves. So in Tier 1 and Tier 2, the environment that the encounters take place in might be hazardous. You, you have to deal with difficult terrain. You have to deal with water. You might have um, some terrain that might slightly harm you. When you get to tier three and tier four, you should be adventuring in places where resources need to be used to deal with not just the threat, but with the locale itself. So you're taking acid damage just because you are in this other plane and you need to use your resources to deal with that before you can even think about fighting the monsters there. Well, come on. The classic one is you adventuring underwater, right? Sure. Like as soon as you have to adventure underwater... Like, how do you breathe underwater? How do you move underwater? Sure. Yep. And, uh, you know, the demon mud pits are another great example of that. (laughs) That's true. Going back to those uh, first edition days. So, you know, start thinking bigger scale when you think tier three and tier four, not just on the plot level, but on the intricacies of the encounter level. It's true. It's very true. Where are we going next? Well, one of the things uh, that I heard a lot about at Winter Fantasy uh, was things that broke, quote unquote, broke adventures. And so I went on to Facebook to the Adventures League group and asked, hey, I've been hearing a lot about this tier three, tier four. Uh, Give me some examples of things that have happened in adventures you've played or run where the adventure was broken because of the way the adventure was written intermingled with the abilities of the, of the characters. And first I got a lot of, well, this character did 200 points of damage in a round. Well, that's, that's, that's okay. That's powerful, but that I don't consider that breaking an adventure to me. Breaking an adventure is uh, being able to skip over the whole adventure because of a power that you have. So, uh, you know, you, and we can give, examples of even low level uh, powers or spells that can do this. Like at low levels, if you can cast speak with dad and it's a murder mystery, it could be a very short adventure. Hey, Bob, mm-hmm. wake up. Who killed you? Um, same That's thing right. with Ray's dad. Uh, you, you could just bring the character. You, I must save the prince. Okay. You go into the lair. You just kill the prince, drag his body out and then bring him back to life. And you've kind of saved the prince. Um, So even at low levels, there are things that can break uh, adventures. At mid-level, you have things like teleport or windwalk, where if you're planning the trip to a place to be the adventure and they just teleport there, they've skipped the adventure. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep those things in mind. Uh, Something like Forbiddance. I saw that spell used to pretty much wipe out an entire adventure because everything in the adventure was a demon. And if you cast that spell, every turn that the the creature starts its turn in this forbiddance, which is a huge, it could fit four dungeons into this 
area of the spell, it takes like 4d10 damage. No save, it just takes it. So you cast it, wait 10 minutes, and every major demon in the uh, thing is dead within minutes. Which is a problem. Uh, that is a problem. So, and then at a high level, of course, every spell can break something somehow, pretty much. I mean, Wish is just the beginning, uh, tip of the iceberg on, on what spells can be used to to just skip over things completely. Uh, legend lore spell. Oh, I have to deal with this item or this person. I cast legend lore. Tell me everything I need to know about the person. Uh, can can give away the adventure like that. Um, Heroes feast. You you uh you came up against that, right? Well, yeah, that's the problem with my my adventure because like if 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 it's Yanti and it's supposed to be themed towards poison and everything does poison damage, Heroes feast kind of like just negates all of the poison damage. So right. you can't you can't write. When you're, it's like how do you write? How do you design around that? Right? Like, I mean, yeah. um, those are uh, honestly, if you ask me, like, those are actually problems with the design of the game. Mm-hmm. Like, those spells shouldn't exist, or they should exist in a way that limits their usefulness. Um, well, I mean, the the real answer is. You're writing for your home group. You know they can cast Heroes Feast. You just just don't put them up against the T, or you put them up against the T who can do different types of damage. But let, let me put it this way: this this for this whole Forbidden yeah. um, spell. Let's use that as the example. Okay. Why does that spell exist for player characters to use? What purpose does it actually have in play? Well, I I think I think the problem with that spell is it was written with the intent that you cast it. And things that are outside cannot come in. Sure. Then why is it doing damage? <laughs> That's the problem. That's the problem. It it doesn't say when a creature moves into the area, if they're already in there, then it does the damage. And that's the problem. So I think, I don't think if, if it had been designed the way it was intended to be designed, I assume it would be okay. It would still be powerful, but it would be okay. Uh, but it's... Um, yeah, it's just ridiculous as is. So, like, that, that's okay. Well, aside from that, so that's that's my first problem. Like with um, it's, it's it was my problem with three point five Dungeons and Dragons in a lot of ways. Is like, uh, eventually, there's um, I was I was referenced Nightfang Spire, right? The heart of Nightfang Spire. Mm-hmm. There's a whole page of all the spells that don't work on Nightfang Spire because it breaks because it right. breaks. It's exactly what you're saying here. It breaks the adventure. Like you can just go right to the end of the adventure right away and deal with the, the end part of the game. Of the of the scenario, right. so when you have to do that, like when there are spells that that can eliminate adventure types in your game, I think you might have a problem with your game. Right. Like I, I don't know why those are designed in there, and of course it's D anD D, so those things have always existed. They're they're there. Um, it makes it tricky to design around them, though. Yeah. Like you have, so then then designing around them. Um, you need to know what they all are. Like there should be like a list of them. Like think about all these things while you're designing. And, Uh, and yeah, no, I I'm, I'm agreeing with you. And I think that leads us to our next point, uh, which is when you create your adventure for high levels, you can keep those things in mind and deal with them without necessarily having every adventure say, you can't cast spells above fourth level or this spell doesn't work. You just have to give a give give your encounter design a little bit more thought, and while not completely voiding those abilities, make them not necessarily more attractive to use. An example might be this: you're going into a demon infested lair. Um, oh, I'm just going to do you know a uh, banishment, and I'm going to get rid of all the bad guys just like that um, have. So in your story, have there be important um, victims, kidnap victims also in there that have tattoos on them that link them to the demons. So if you banish the demon, you, you can let it happen in the first room. In the second room, if you do it, you, you banish the demon, but then the captive also disappears because it's tied to the demon. Then you've had them use a resource. Now they have to break concentration on the spell to bring the demon back because they need to save the, 
prisoner. Does that make sense? Yes. But uh, like that, that also, yes, it makes, it makes. Right. So, so you just need to think, you know, think a little bit ahead, especially if you're not running an organized play campaign and you know exactly what your players can do, you know, what their tendencies are. So you can foil them, not every time, but make them think a little bit before they start going to that well one too many times. Well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of creating situations and letting characters figure it out with the resources they have at their disposal. The problem is, is that when you have certain resources at your disposal that can basically auto fix any problem, mm. then those resources are problematic. Yes. But once you see them once or twice, you can sort of figure out how to get around them right. as, as, as game masters when you're, you know, GMing, like, right. like here, uh, it's harder though when you're designing for publication. For sure, for sure. And the problem <laughs> now, also. Oh, go ahead, Chris. No, I'm gonna say like designing high level stuff. Like I've done it before. Like I've run games that have gone into the 15, 16 mm-hmm. levels. No problem. Like I've that's where those campaigns have have ended in some cases and whatnot. That's not such a big deal for me. Like I can just make whatever I want to make as far as bad guys and NPCs go and and things like that and give them whatever abilities I want to give them. Mm -hmm. And I encourage player players and team. I I encourage dungeon masters out there all over the place to just do that stuff. Mm -hmm. Like you'll know your group by that point in time because you've played for that long. You'll know how to design around and what's interesting to them. Mm -hmm. If you just use all the other hundreds of things that we've talked about, but Sean is right. Like you should like uh, that thing that he was talking about with the banishment, the prisoner, that's kind of like a puzzle, right? You're basically using your resources to solve a puzzle. And encounters all of them sort of become puzzle-like. And if they have multiple choice points to make during the encounter, then you have these um, encounters that have uh, have multiple stakes set inside of them. And you need people to make choices about how to spend their resources, their time, their actions, and whatnot before things happen. And it's not just kill or be killed or get through this next thing. It's it's now like, how much time do we have? Can we get there before this happens? Can we save that person before they die? Are we going to, uh, what do we have to sacrifice to get there? Are we going to have enough left in the tank to deal with the, you know, the extra planner entity? Uh, if we spend all this stuff to do this, this thing over here before we get there, although then this might make it easier for us to deal with the extra planner entity later, or at least we'll save this person that we needed to save and they'll help us later. Right. You know, things like that. Like now we have all these choice points. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you've mentioned what you have left in the tank and resources. And I think a point that we need to make and that a lot of DMs and adventure designers forget or can't do anything about is that D&D is a resource management game. It's a narrative game, sure. It's it's many different kinds of games, but at its core, it's a resource management game. And mm-hmm. on page 84 of the DMG, there is a very important passage and a very important chart. The passage says most adventuring parties can handle about six to eight medium or hard encounters in a day. Then it says if you give easier encounters, they should be doing more of them. If you give harder encounters, then they could do less of them. But you get the idea. Six to eight encounters. They expect you to drain the resources of your players throughout their adventuring day. That same chart says that it tells you how much XP a character is expected to earn in an adventuring day. So at first level, they're expected to earn 300 XP per, per PC in their adventuring day. So between waking up and taking their final, uh, between taking a long rest, they are expected to earn 300 uh, XP. You know, that's, that's a lot that takes them to second level right away. Um, And it's not that different throughout the rest Mm -hmm. of the chart. By 17th level, you should be using 25,000 XP per per player, per character, per adventuring day. And you only need 40,000. So they're only expecting you to adventure, only 40,000 to go up a level. So they're only expecting you to have two adventuring days to get from 17th to 18th level. Um, the problem is fitting all of those encounters, those six, eight, or more encounters in one session. Because we, have, you know, when we're writing for, say, Adventures League, we have to write a four-hour adventure usually. It's hard to at for a sixteenth-level table to get in eight encounters in four hours. It's hard to do that at first level. It's true. So, 
you know, there's there's a disconnect there between what the game expects you to do in terms of resource management with the idea that you can play a four hour adventure and get a complete thing done. Now, now, now real quick, let's, let's Mm -hmm. stop and talk about that for a second because that four hour adventuring thing is, is something that we're talking about in relationship to adventurers league and what people generally play. That does not mean that, that, I am one of those people that will play games at, with my home group that an adventuring day will span two to three sessions. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and so, yeah, absolutely. So that's different. Like, right. right. Then, then six to eight or 10 encounters in a day takes us 10 hours to play. Possibly. It doesn't have to like fifth edition is actually a lot quicker. I've had fights go a lot faster. I've had, you know, uh, difficult fights, like several difficult fights in a row, difficult encounters and other kinds of encounters too, right. like exploration situations, uh, interactions, um, trap laden rooms with other things going on. You know, those choice points that we talk about, all that stuff that requires, um, that requires skill checks and resource expenditure. Cause to me, an encounter in a day is some place where you have to mm-hmm. expend resources in some way, shape or form, or make difficult choices that will impact right. your game going forward. Yeah. Those are encounters to me. So let's get that. Let's 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 clarify that right now. But don't you think in the way that the game has been portrayed, either through Adventures League play or just through streaming or through, uh, you know, the way the books have described it, we aren't seeing adventures published or played or shown where a group does only take one long rest after after getting through six, eight, ten encounters. Uh, I don't think that that is ex- at all what is portrayed. Right. But that is kind of what this experience point, you know, finagling is is talking about. Uh, yes, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Probably. I don't, I don't think that the book is very good, a very good corollary to what is going on in the actual playing of the game. Right. But, but, but you would agree though, that in order to make higher level adventures more challenging and less likely for players to break them, you need to drain resources. Uh, I think, I think to make higher level adventures more playable and uh, to make higher level adventures more playable, what we need is to, I'm sorry, Sean, I don't understand the question because what, in what context are we talking about? Well, you've been saying you've said, they have too many resources. Higher level characters have too many resources, uh, powerful resources uh, that they have too much, quote unquote, I think you said left in the tank. I said, I said, you, we want to make them make choices to, to make sure that to, to make them decide whether they want to have something left in the tank or not have something left in the tank based on the choices that they make going through the adventure. Okay. But even those choices should have in, uh, impact how the end of the adventure plays out. Sure. But in order to have even that choice there, one of the choices does need to be draining the resources. Yeah, but it should be on like it should be on the players to make the decision whether they want to expend their resources or not. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. But if they choose to expend resources, there needs to be an encounter for them on which to expend. Right. Correct. Right. Yeah, that's so, that choice point. That so I'm you do about. need like, the, to have that longer game with more encounters without taking a long rest between them Mm -hmm. in order to have that ability to drain resources. Yeah, exactly. And if they do take that long rest, then something bad needs to happen. Like that's that timing, that timer thing that I'm talking about. So, so what I tried to do there is to say, I think we've lost sight as a game of this whole resource allocation part of the game where if after every encounter, whether we're talking about tier one or tier four, after every encounter, the party takes a long rest. There's no resource loss. And so it's harder to challenge them when they have all those resources available. Oh, correct. I agree with you. Right. There, there's okay. been there's been some interesting things in the um, in the Adventures League adventures that I've run for uh, that, that are in season seven. Not even mm-hmm. the one that I wrote, just the which has its own problems. I have to go and fix a few things on it Um, where uh, an encounter happens. And then it's like, you're going to travel through the jungle for five days. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're going to get a long rest in there. So you're not going to lose anything from that. You're going to go to the next encounter with your full uh, complement of abilities. And, and, you know, at lower levels, that's okay. Um, 
because there might be something going on as you travel even. But at higher levels, there needs to be that time limit that we've talked about or something, as you were talking about, that makes them make that choice. And if they if they don't hurry to the next location using a teleport, then bad things are going to happen. Yes, I agree. I'm with you. Because that teleport not only doesn't allow them to take a long rest, but it uses the, that resource. Uh-huh. It takes a spell slot and a yep. high level, higher level spell slot too. Yep. Yeah. I mean, th- th- that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like, um, that is, that is in my opinion, where the, the quality of design goes in, in any adventure, but especially in higher level adventures, like you need to, they need to, the characters need to constantly feel the pressure on mm-hmm. them. And when they can take a long rest or even a short rest, that is, that is their moment mm-hmm. to take a breath. Like, and to think about, Think about what their next move is going to be. And that should even be a choice point there. There should never be really, in my opinion, design-wise, if they get to take a breath for like an hour or something like that for a short rest or even for eight hours for a long rest, that should also be a time when we're like, all right, what do we do now? Because we just learned some stuff and just dealt with something. Right. There should be a consequence to that rest. Yeah. Or or they just solved a problem, like a, a larger problem. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like the end of an adventure or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but yeah, if they're taking, if they have a chance to take a long rest in the middle of a thing, like then the bad guys should be doing something, and it should get a lot worse. Mm-hmm. That's my thought, anyway. No, I I agree. So I think that really what we've come down to here is, you know, if you're if you're creating high level adventures, keep in mind that resource management part of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, think ahead to what the bad guy is going to gain. If the players recoup their resources, man, I, I think it's interesting that, and I think you're right that you brought this up about how um, this game—it's—it's it's a resource management game because it is a resource management game. Spell slots are resource management. Hit points are resource management. Your hit dice are resource management. Um, and and then how you choose to spend your actions, which is a resource too, on your turn and over the course of an encounter, is part of managing those resources. Like, are you just going to do the attack thing and use your just your cantrips? Or are you going to blow some bigger spells and bigger abilities? Are, are you going to use some superiority dice that you might not get back for a little while? Are you going to use some of those um, bardic inspirations that you, it might take a, I think it takes a short rest to get those back. Mm-hmm. So like, what are you going to spend? Like, what are you going to do? Yep. So a lot of, a lot of creating a challenging high level adventure, especially with a super optimized party, uh, is that making not just combat's more difficult, but making the entire structure of the adventure more difficult in the choices that they need to make. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I have nothing else to say to that. I mean, yes, the answer is yes. Yep. Uh, you can also put time limits on the combats that you do have. Um, so if your players are crushing things in, you know, four rounds at the most, uh, put in a timer where if they don't defeat the bad guy in two rounds, then something happens. Uh, either more people show up or uh, later encounters become impossible. Uh, they lose and then they have to deal with the ramifications of that. Uh, you know, there are ways other than just throwing more monsters at them to to challenge a, a high level party. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else you want to talk about concerning this? Uh, I think we're good. I see that we're getting just about out of time but you know basically if you are a dm that's creating your own stuff at home just keep keep an eye on which party does uh don't negate their fun but if they are a party that wants to be challenged use some of these alternative ways to challenge them Mm -hmm. if you're writing for publication and you don't know what 16th and 17th level characters are bringing to the table May God have mercy on your soul. Yeah, a lot of stuff. You almost have to have a wizard in every encounter to cast counter spell. Otherwise, it's just kind of pointless, man. Like, other than that, or make sure that you have some sort of legendary action for your people to teleport because there's nothing like there's nothing worse than getting trapped in a wall of force and your bad guy can't do anything. Yep. And that's just one example. Oh, yeah. One I mean, example. We, we could spend six hours just on high level tactics. Um, yeah. But, Which not a bad idea to have that conversation with somebody so right. that you can figure out all the things that you shouldn't do. Yep. I mean, I learned a whole lot of that just by running a few games. Yes. All right. Well, 
with that, I will say thank you everyone so much for listening. Um, and I want to thank all of our patrons out there who, who give us money every month and, and it's wonderful and you're all amazing people. And um, speaking of you patrons out there, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with DND, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website. And for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout out, which I will be giving those shout outs in the uh, later. Or for four fifty a month, you not only get the impending shout-outs, uh, but you also get our pre-production show notes. And we do try to give patrons little extras when we get the chance. If you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those reviews help even if you're not listening via Apple Podcasts because, you know, those other podcatchers may use Apple Podcasts to rate shows. And we would love to get some five-star reviews from you all to make us more visible. Mm-hmm. And now for those impending shout-outs. So uh, Kevin Minorzak, the old school DM, Xavier Denim Vargos, Eric Simon, Victor Wyatt, Garrett Colon, and John Carney. Thank you for being patrons of Mr. Director Mark Productions and Down with D&D. We greatly appreciate that. Uh, Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merlin or on the Down with D&D G Plus community where we discuss great topics like how do you deal with high-level characters. How about you, Chris? Oh, you can catch me at uh, misdirected Mark on Twitter because that's the best place to, to go there. Or you can go to the website where you can catch other great shows such as the Misdirected Mark podcast. We've just had our 300th episode. It's where Chris, Phil, and Bob, they talk about DMing, GMing, game design, all sorts of random game stuff. And it's live every Tuesday uh, at 8.45 Eastern. It is. I will attest to that because I often watch it. Hmm. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So what are we going to do now, Sean? We're going to go kill some epic level monsters. Boom. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?